leave, but we are extraordinarily close to wrapping up the book of Luke. Uh, we started way back in April of last year, and after today, we've got only three more weeks to go, and I hope that you have learned as much from it as I have, and uh, tonight, uh, we're going to spend some time talking about the, the crucifixion of, of Jesus and uh, I must confess to you that uh, this has been a challenging week trying to pull to, together this message uh, for a number of reasons, but perhaps the, the greatest reason that there was struggle is simply because of its familiarity. Uh, the cruci crucifixion, it, it's central to the gospel, and because it's central, it's uh, the center of, of, of many sermons and Bible studies and Christian songs, and of course, movies about Jesus' life. And sadly, once something becomes familiar, uh, it loses kind of its impact, and we tend to take it for granted, and uh, we don't become a as moved by it as we used to be moved by it. And I believe that's why Mel Gibson's uh, The Passion of the Christ was such a a powerful movie, uh, because it, it stripped away all of the familiarity of the story, it, and it showed us the, the, the brutality of the crucifixion and, and, and all of its ugliness. And no longer uh, was the crucifixion some sanitized, uh, you know, children's church uh, story that, that you clean up. And I still remember... Uh, our church family, we rented out a theater at Regal, and we took the entire church family and a bunch of our church family's friends there, and before we did that, I figured, hey, I better go check this thing out first just to make sure that I'm prepared for it because I know that it was going to be brutal. And I can remember sitting in that theater and uh, a fellow from our church went uh, along with me, a fellow who has subsequently had passed away a number of years ago. And I remember sitting beside him and with tears running down my face, in my mind, I'm begging those Roman soldiers to quit beating on Jesus. I mean, as I watched that, as I, I, I you know, and, and obviously it was, you know, it's, it's theater, but as the whip would crack against Jesus' back and the, 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 the skin would be torn away and, and the blood would fly and he would be spat upon and things like that, I just thought, can you just please stop brutalizing this guy? Would you please just stop? And the passion has allowed a generation of people to view the crucifixion through fresh eyes. And so it's my hope tonight that, that as I approach this uh, account of the crucifixion, that, that, that we would see it in, in, in fresh eyes. And uh, I pray that you, you would give me a little bit of liberty. Uh, there's going to be some, some areas in, in the midst of the message, you might be thinking like, where in the world is Mike going with this? Uh, but I believe at the end, it, it, it all kind of comes together. So uh, if you get in the middle of this and you think that you need to vacate, I, I would encourage you to to have some intestinal fortitude and just, just hang in there a little bit. Now, in order to get started, uh, I want to uh, introduce you 
uh, to two brothers. Uh, their names are Thomas and Meeks Griffin. And they lived in a, in a little town called Blackstock in, in rural South Carolina around the, the, the turn of the 20th century, early 1900s. And uh, these two brothers, uh, they were extremely successful farmers. They had a 130-acre farm, which was quite an accomplishment for, for numerous reasons, the first of which is because they were only in their mid-20s. How two 20-year-olds could come across a 130-acre farm and actually make it work back in you know, the 1910s, pretty impressive. But there was a second reason why it was impressive. And it was because they were African-Americans living in the post-Civil War Deep South. And in 1913, one of uh, the, the, the Griffin's neighbors, he was a, a 73-year-old white man by the name of John Lewis, who was having an affair with a 22-year-old married black woman by the name of Anna Davis. How a, a 73-year-old guy ends up with a 22-year-old, I'll never figure that out. Uh, but anyhow, John Lewis, he was shot dead in his home. And uh, the police initially focused their investigation on Anna and her husband. As a matter of fact, they ended up arresting Anna and her husband as they were trying to get out of town with a bunch of uh, filled suitcases. And one of the suitcases actually happened to have a pair of bloodied trousers in them. And it seemed like it was a, an open and shut case. That was until the murder weapon was discovered. And it was traced to a small-time criminal by the name of John Stevenson, who just happened to be a friend of Anna and her husband. And after being uh, interviewed by the police, John Stevenson uh, confessed to being the lookout for the murder. And then he made a plea bargain to save his life. And he wanted to save the lives of Anna and her husband. And so he implicated the Griffins brothers in the murder. And he did so as he would confess years later because he thought the wealthy farmers could afford to defend themselves and beat the charges. But that wouldn't be the case. In spite of having to sell their farm in order to pay all of their defense costs, and in spite of having over 100 white members of the community, including the mayor and the sheriff, and two members of the jury petitioned the South Carolina governor to pardon them. On September 29th, 1915, Thomas and Meeks were sent to the electric chair for a crime they didn't commit. And it wouldn't be until 2009, almost 100 years later, that they would earn the first posthumous pardon ever issued by South Carolina in a murder case. And there's a name for that which Thomas and Meeks experienced. It's called injustice, folks. 
And it is a disease that destroys lives. And it is a disease for which there is only one single cure. Now allow me to explain. If you have a Bible with you or you have a Bible app with you, I'd encourage you to open it or turn it to or flip it to or whatever you do with your Bible app to Luke chapter 23. And uh, we're going to examine verses 13 through 49. And uh, we're going to read the the whole thing uh, because I think it needs to be read. And uh, so if if you are able and you can stand for the next five minutes or so, I would encourage you to, to do so. Luke chapter 23, <clears throat> starting uh, in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And a third time, Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. And so Pilate decided that their demands should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And and they there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never born and the breasts that have never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. 
Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's lights failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and all the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, the account that we just read is of the greatest injustice this world has ever seen or will ever see. And unlike every other human being who has or will ever walk the face of this planet, Jesus was completely without sin. And like each one of us, Jesus fulfilled every one of his Father's commands 24 7, 365 days a year, without even one slip up. And yet, he was falsely accused on trumped up charges. He was tried without representation, and although he was found to be innocent, not only by Pilate, but also by King Herod, he was still wrongfully convicted. Brutally beaten, mercilessly ridiculed, and horrifically murdered. All in a span of less than 24 hours. What happened to Jesus was the consummate level of injustice. And from it, we are going to learn three things this evening. We are going to learn what is the cause of injustice. We are going to learn the cost of injustice and we're ultimately going to learn the cure for injustice. And folks, we live in a society right now that is laser-focused on issues of injustice. If you type the term injustice in Google and you click on the, the News tab, it will return nearly 4 million articles with the keyword injustice. And they cover everything from the, the Me Too movement to criminal sentencing guidelines to issues of civil rights and hate crimes to a guy in British Columbia who believes he's being unjustly kept from playing in the local pickleball league. 
I don't even know what pickleball is. But someone's keeping this guy from playing in it. And while we might chuckle at the last one, when you're being treated unjustly, it's not a laughing matter. And if we want to stop injustice, we've got to figure out where it actually comes from because it's one thing to deal with the symptoms, and we as Americans, we're really good with dealing with symptoms. But it's another thing to get to the root, to, to find out where injustice really comes from. And last week, James Axel, he did a wonderful job of, of taking us through Jesus' trial in front of the Jewish religious leaders and ultimately in front of Pilate, the, the governor of, of Judea. And it was in those verses, the one that James took us through, where we actually find the, the root of injustice. Look again on the big screen at verses 1 and 2 of Luke 23 that, that James took us through last week. It says, Then the whole company of them arose, that would be the Jewish leaders, and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now, the, the Jewish religious leaders give Pilate three reasons why they believe that, that Jesus should be condemned and executed by the Romans. The first two are smoke screens. Charge number one. Jesus is misleading the nation. Basically, they're saying that, that Jesus is disturbing the, 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 the peace of the community, the, the unity of the community, because he, they see him as a religious agitator. They, they don't like that he's been hanging out with, with sinners and tax collectors. They don't like that, that Jesus has been calling them names like hypocrites and blind guides and whitewashed tombs and my favorite, the brood of vipers. I mean, you want to insult someone and say, you are a brood of vipers. You see, Jesus is basically a thorn in their sign. But that's not the real reason behind their unjust treatment of him. Charge number two. They said that Jesus is keeping them from giving tribute, or, or another term, paying taxes to the Romans. Now, we all know that's a totally false charge because we were all paying attention when I, when I preached about this a, a number of weeks ago when we were working our way through Luke 20 and the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus by asking Jesus whether it was right or not to, to pay taxes to the Romans. And, and Jesus throws out that great answer. You know, he says, first of all, give me a coin. They give him a coin. He looks at the coin. He says, whose inscription's on the coin? They say Caesar's inscriptions on the coin. And then Jesus says, well, you know what? You should render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and you should render to God that which is God. And all those guys had to shut up because Jesus had, had put them in their place. In other words, Jesus pretty much said to them the same thing that your accountant tells you in every April. Stop complaining, just pay your taxes, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Just stop complaining, pay the taxes. So making this charge that Jesus doesn't want people to pay taxes, uh, they're basically trying to use this as, a, as a, a threat against Pilate. That this guy, is he's not only causing us problems, he's ultimately causing you problems and you don't know about it. But that too isn't the real reason behind their unjust treatment for Jesus. 
Then there's charge number three. <clears throat> Jesus is claiming to be the Christ, and then they say a king. Now here, brothers and sisters, this is the real reason why these guys want Jesus dead. Everything else, complete smokescreen. And ultimately, this is where we find the root of all injustice that's experienced in the world. Allow me to explain. First of all, you need to understand that the Jewish religious leaders weren't being completely truthful with Pilate regarding this charge. Now, there's a surprise, right? They're not being completely forthright. You see, Pilate would not have understood what, what the, the Jewish people were meant when they were saying that Jesus was claiming to be the Christ. Pilate, he wouldn't have understood that, that by Jesus claiming to be the anointed one, the Messiah, that he was actually claiming to be the God of the universe. You see, Pilate, he wasn't a Jewish theologian. He was a pagan Roman government official. And so Jesus claiming, even if he did understand that, 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 that Jesus claimed that he was the one and only true God of the universe, Pilate would be like, yeah, whatever. I got better things to do. And he would have probably written Jesus off as being just some kind of nut job, basically. But what Pilate would understand is that which the Jewish leaders put at the very end. They claimed that Jesus was claiming to be a king. Jesus was actually claiming to be the king, but they said that he was claiming to be a king. And Pilate, he understood that. When, when someone said, hey, here's a guy who's claiming to be a king, all of a sudden Pilate's ears would have, would have propped up because he knows that, that, that if people are, are claiming to be a king, this is going to cause problems for him in Judea. And if news gets back to the emperor, Caesar, it's going to cause problems back in Rome. And Pilate doesn't want problems in Judea. He doesn't want problems in Rome. And I believe it's for this reason that, that Pilate looks at Jesus and he asks him the question, are you the king of the Jews? And to which Jesus says, you've said so. But not even that was enough to cause Pilate to convict Jesus. It says, then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and from Galilee, even to this place. You see, hearing Pilate's declaration that Jesus is not guilty, it throws the religious leaders into a frenzy. And the word that has been translated urgent here, folks, it could also be translated adamant. And so what they try to do is they try to push harder because when you're not getting your way and you think you're right and the people don't seem to be listening to you, you push harder. You don't back down. You just push harder. And so they extend the charges by saying Jesus isn't just causing problems here. He's also causing problems in Galilee. You see, these guys aren't going to be satisfied until the threat to their power, Jesus, is eliminated. And that, brothers and sisters, that is the root of all injustice in the world. Injustice is about power and control. That's what it's about. One group of people 
deriving another group of people from justice because the first group of people wants to maintain power and control over the second group of people. And the reason the Jewish religious leaders were persecuting Jesus is because they wanted to maintain their power. They wanted to be in control. Jesus was a clear and present threat to them, and he had to be wiped out. Think about this for a moment. Why were the Africans enslaved? It was because the slave masters, they wanted power and control. They needed free labor so they could maximize their profits. And if they could control a group of people in order to do that, they would do it. Why were the Jim Crow laws established after slavery was abolished? Because those in power in the South wanted to maintain that power. Because after 200 plus years of of, uh, oppressing slaves, the last thing the power brokers wanted down in the South was African Americans to gain any level of power in agriculture or manufacturing or retail or government or any other institution. And why do movie producers sexually exploit young actors and actresses? Because they had what? The power to do it. And why does one elementary school student bully another elementary school student, folks? Why does that happen? Because he or she wants to show what? That they have power. And why have you and I treated others poorly and you know we've done it from one time or another? It's because we have power and the other person doesn't. And you know what? It starts when we're young and it keeps going. Go down to our nursery where the little crumb crunchers are right now. Okay? They're showing injustice to one another. Our workers try to solve those problems. But there's one kid down, I, not, I, not right now. I mean, I'm not implicating any of your children right now, all right? But, you know, theoretically, there's a kid down there who's more powerful than another kid. They're going to execute their power over that kid. And then it plays out in the classroom and on the playground and the athletic field and the factory floor and the office, the halls of government. It even happens in homes. You see, behind every form of injustice you will find the powerful trying to maintain their power or to become even more powerful, and they do it by oppressing other people. And because we are all sinful, none of us are immune to exploiting that power, no matter how great or small a power we might have. And make no mistake about it, The Jewish religious leaders didn't treat Jesus poorly because he was kind to the poor. And they didn't treat him poorly because he healed the sick. They didn't even treat him poorly and unjustly because he called them names. They treated Jesus unjustly because he was a threat to their power, their security, their prestige, and their income. And that brings us to the second thing, folks, that we learn about injustice from this. And it's the cost of it. Look at verses 13 through 16. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, 
Behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. The idea that that Pilate had here was, you know what? I'm just going to go give Jesus a beating and we'll let him go. Will that satisfy you? Will you be okay with that? If we rough him up a little bit, you know, will that work for you? So Pilate, after declaring Jesus innocent and sending him to King Herod, who just happened to be in Jerusalem at the time because he was the, the king over the region of Galilee, Herod interviews Jesus. Herod decides that, that he's not guilty. So Pilate, again, reaffirms that he believes that Jesus is innocent. And the religious leaders and the people who've gathered, they will have nothing of it. So here's what happens. Verse 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud crowds that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So these people, they cry out to have this guy by the name of Barabbas released and Jesus crucified. Now, The obvious question is, who is this dude Barabbas, and where in the world did he come from? I mean, all of a sudden, he just like appears on the scene. Well, when the other gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, and John, record the events of Jesus' trial, they let us know that every year during the Passover time, the Roman authorities made it a practice of pardoning a prisoner as an act of kindness to the Jewish people. They, they would just pardon a, a, a random person. And uh, they also let us know, the other gospel writers, and actually even Luke, that, that Barabbas, uh, the, people, the person that people are begging to be released, he's a mean hombre. He has led an insurrection. Not only in that insurrection uh, did he cause all kinds of violence, he actually killed people. And if anyone deserves death, it's Barabbas. Now, Pilate cannot believe his ears. These people, they still want Jesus' head on a platter. Platter, not on a platter, on a platter. The one who healed the sick, who gave sight to the blind, who, who made the deaf hear, the lame walk, who loved the poor, who taught with power and authority, the one who, that many in the crowd had just a week earlier celebrated as he was coming into Jerusalem on the back of a cult. Yeah, that Jesus, they wanted him crucified, and they wanted the murderer, Barabbas, released. So three times, Pilate pleads Jesus' innocence to the crowd. And three times he shouted down. And so Pilate relents. He releases Barabbas, 
the murderer, and condemns Jesus, an innocent man, to death. And isn't that one of the primary ways that injustice prevails in the world? When we give up on doing what is right because it goes against popular opinion. How many times have you or I kept our mouths shut or turned a blind eye when another person is being treated with injustice? How many times do we do that? We don't want to get involved. How many times have we failed to step in and stand up for what is right simply because the majority was advocating for injustice and they were more vocal? How many times is our silence actually complicity for the exploitation of others? And how many times does our twisted allegiance, and I use that word very intentionally, folks, our twisted allegiance to our political party or the color of our skin or our socioeconomic position cause us to allow injustice to be perpetrated? How many times do we do that? Every one of us in this room. And it doesn't matter whether we're a Democrat, it doesn't matter whether we're a Republican, an Independent, or a member of the Marvel Superhero Party, folks. It doesn't matter whether we're white, or black, or Latino, or Asian, whether we're rich or poor, somewhere in between. When we participate in that which is unjust, we number ourselves among the crowd who cheered on Jesus' crucifixion. That's what we do. And when those who know what is right fail to take a stand, the innocent are punished and the guilty are set free. And that, brothers and sisters, that is the cost of injustice. The innocent are punished and the guilty are set free. And when that happens, our entire society suffers. It's not one group won and the other group loses. And that's the way, it, how it's played nowadays, folks. When injustice prevails, whether it's rich against poor, white against black, Latino against Asian, educated against uneducated, when injustice prevails, when the innocent are made to be guilty and the guilty are allowed to be called innocent, society suffers. So many times we think that a justice incurs only when the innocent are punished, but that is only half the story, folks. It is equally unjust for the guilty to be set free. And for true justice to occur, not only do the innocent need to be set free, but the guilty must be punished. And this truth doesn't flow from the lips of Mike Leonzo. It flows from the pages of Scripture. And a lot of our culture doesn't want to hear it. But this is what God's Word tells us about that. Go ahead there, Richard. These also are sayings of the wise 
Partiality and judging is not good. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have a delight and a good blessing will come upon them. But Proverbs continues, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Leviticus 19, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. When Kathy and I lived in Southern California, I was called to, for jury duty in the city of Compton, which, folks, is basically a war zone. And I found myself on a jury pool in a murder trial. It was a, a drug deal gone bad, as if there is any drug deal that goes good, right? Right? And something apparently went wrong. Uh, the buyer started to run, and the three guys that he was buying the drugs for whipped out a gun and shoot the fleeing buyer in the back and kill him. And as the attorneys are, are questioning the jury pool, trying to select 12 men and women to sit on the jury, the prosecutor would ask this question. What is the greater travesty of justice? The innocent condemned are the guilty set free. And to a person, everyone who was asked that question by the prosecutor, and he asked that question to, a, there was like 120 people in this jury pool. He asked that question to a lot of people. To a man and to a woman, they would answer, the greater injustice is the innocent being condemned. And eventually the prosecutor came to the guy sitting beside me. The guy sitting beside me was a retired Air Force fighter pilot. He had, he had flown in battle. He, he knew what it was to, to see people die and to lose friends. And, and the, the prosecutor who, who was just, he was dressed, he's this little Italian guy dressed in the nines, man. I mean, he was... He was looking good. He asked this guy the question. And my seatmate replies, both are equal travesties of justice. There was dead silence in the courtroom. Complete dead silence. The prosecutor never had to answer that question again. You see, injustice doesn't just occur when the innocent are falsely accused, folks. It also occurs when the guilty are set free. And in both cases, society suffers. You see, the cost of injustice, it affects not only the parties that are going on, but it affects everybody else. Look at verses 26 and 27. And when they led him away, they seized one of Simon who was coming in from the country and laid him on a cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. 
You see, as the, the brutalized Jesus makes his, his way uh, down the, the road to Golgotha, the place of the skull, the hill upon which he is going to be crucified, he is followed by a great multitude of people and of women who are mourning and lamenting for him. And we don't know whether these, these people were, were professional mourners who, who they had them back in that day. That, that would follow along when, when someone was going to get crucified and they would cry and all that kind of stuff, or whether they were actually friends of Jesus. And it really, it doesn't matter. But as they're walking, Jesus becomes aware of their presence, and they become a focal point for him. And Jesus says to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? See, in Jesus' day, it was a sign of great blessing for a woman to have a child. And what Jesus is now saying that that which is a blessing one day is ultimately going to become a curse. That one day it will actually be better to be a barren woman, to be childless. And the pain and the sadness one day would be so bad that, that, that people would be begging that, that mountains would actually fall and crush them. And then he says these words, for if they do these things when the wood is green... What will happen when it is dry? And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, if this, what you're experiencing right now, if this is happening to me, a living tree, one that is green, one who has been completely obedient to the Father, what will happen to you and your nation, a dead tree, one that is dry, one that is plagued by sin, of which this injustice is just one of many examples in other words, Jesus says, you know what? If God the Father isn't going to spare me and I'm sinless, what in the world is going to happen to you, dog? What's going to happen? If this is happening to me, what's going to happen to those who don't cling to me? What punishment is, is coming your way. And see, brothers and sisters, we are all guilty before God for our failure to live up to his commands, including the commands to render justice to both the guilty and the innocent. In 2 Corinthians 5, we read this, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this verse teaches us what? That, that, that God for our sake made Jesus his son who knew no sin to be sin. That on the cross of Calvary, God the Father placed upon Jesus our sin. The fullness of it. The stuff that we all did last night and didn't want anybody to know about it on Jesus. The stuff that happened today on Jesus. The stuff we're going to do tomorrow on Jesus. And then God not only did that, then he unleashed his righteous punishment against my sin and against your sin on Jesus. 
He let it all fly. And for as brutal as the passion of the Christ was, I would imagine the real crucifixion wasn't even close to that. And so Jesus is saying, you know what? If that's what God is doing to me right now, what in the world is going to happen to you without me? And that brings me to my final point, the cure for injustice. Look again at verses 32 to 38. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. You see, Jesus wasn't the only one condemned to death on that afternoon of Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D., there were two other men, one on either side. Luke calls them criminals, lawbreakers. And this is an important piece of information that he gives us because from the perspective of the people of Jesus' day, Jesus wasn't crucified as an innocent man. He was crucified as a criminal. And on that day, the vast majority of people did not believe that an injustice was occurring. They believed that the, the, the Jewish authorities were, were dead on, spot on doing what they were doing. Now what happens next? It shows us how we cure injustice. As Jesus hangs naked on that cross, the Roman soldiers are at his feet gambling for his clothes. The Jewish rulers are scoffing at him. Matthew's account of the crucifixion tells us that the passerbys derided him. What I believe is the most interesting statement about those who abused Jesus as he suffered comes from Mark chapter 15. In the 32nd verse, Mark says this, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And this is people mocking him. And then this is what he says. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. As Jesus hung on the cross, both of the guys, on his left and on his right, who were being crucified beside him, they reviled him. But then something happened, which is recorded in Luke 34, or Luke, verse 34 of Luke 23. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, in the midst of the injustice, in the midst of the agony and the suffering, in the midst of the rejection, the reviling, Jesus prays that his Father in heaven might forgive all of those who are abusing him. Who does that? 
Who of us does that? When we're in the midst of, of being persecuted, who of us prays for those who are persecuting us? Well, apparently that act of love has a profound effect on one of the criminals. And as his partner in crime rails at Jesus and says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other criminal rebukes his friend. He says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There, as he hangs on the cross, in the waning moments of his life, the criminal gets it. He figures out what many in our world struggle to figure out. There as he suffers, he gets the gospel. On the cross beside Jesus, he gets that Jesus is the Son of God. He gets that Jesus is innocent and that it's through the cross that Jesus would pray the price for sins. He gets it so much that on the cross, he confesses his own sin and he places his faith and hope in Jesus Christ for all eternity. And what does he gain? He gains eternal life. At the last moment in the final hour, if not minutes of his life, this criminal confesses his sin, receives Jesus in faith, and becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, that tells me something. That tells me that nobody's too far gone. Nobody. Not even this maniac who shot up a synagogue. And so who are we to look at others and condemn them? Who are we to make all of these proclamations? Because we have no idea who God is drawing to himself and when he will do it. And on the cross, as the criminal suffered alongside Jesus, he came to understand the gospel. He came to an awareness of God's holiness in a profound way. And it wasn't that God had, had become more holy, but rather this man finally came to understand the holiness of God. On the cross, the eyes of that criminal are opened. And Jesus went from a condemned man to the holy God. But on that cross, the criminal came to understand something else, and that was the depth of his own sinfulness. He knew he was getting what he deserved. He didn't become more sinful. He just became far more aware of his sin. And that, brothers and sisters, that is what happens when the gospel invades our life. We can know that Jesus has invaded our life when all of a sudden God becomes 
and our awareness more and more and more holy. He doesn't become more and more holy, but we become aware of how holy he is. And each and every day, we see something more beautiful and wonderful about God. And at the same time, we have a growing awareness of our own sin. We don't become more sinful, but we have a growing awareness of our sin. That which we didn't think was sin yesterday, as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, we realize today that it was. And when that happens, when God becomes more holy, and I become more, or when I become more aware of God's holiness, and when I become more aware of my sin, when those things separate more and more, that gets bigger. That explodes. And no longer do we think we're all that. And no longer do we look down our noses at others. And no longer do we believe the lie that we can be good enough to work our way into God's graces. And no longer do we see others who are different as less. Suddenly, all we see is the cross, which grows larger and larger as our awareness of God's holiness grows and our awareness of our own sin goes. You see, the gospel, it's the cure for injustice. Because what has to be fixed for injustice to go away is the human heart. That's what's got to get changed. And it's the gospel that moves us beyond these temporary worldly solutions. It's the gospel that moves us beyond flawed political solutions. And it's the gospel that that moves us beyond arrogant intellectual solutions. And it's the gospel that lowers our view of self and raises our view of God. It's the gospel that reconciles you and me, sinners who deserve condemnation, to the one and only holy God who imparts his son's righteousness upon us and places our sin upon him. It's the gospel that empowers us to stand up for what is right and just and good because our Savior is right and just and good. It's the gospel that enables us to consider others better than ourselves because our Savior considered others better than himself. It's the gospel that that causes us to turn the other cheek because Jesus turned the other cheek. It's the gospel that compels us to love and forgive others because Jesus loves and forgives others. And it's the gospel that empowers us to offer grace rather than condemnation, because Jesus offered us grace rather than condemnation. And it's the gospel, and only the gospel, that one day will cause justice to roll like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And may you and I live lives that have been transformed by the gospel so that we might be instruments of justice and peace in this world of conflict and injustice. Let's pray together. Precious Heavenly Father, Lord God, as we prepare to take these elements, may we not take them lightly. May we, Lord, remember the significance of what these elements represent. Lord, for on that day, 
that both horrific and glorious Friday. Lord, your blood was shed and your body broken because of our sin. And may we, Heavenly Father, may we take these elements, Lord, with an attitude of gratefulness, with a heart of humility. Father, if there are those that we need to forgive, would you put that square in our minds? Lord, if we are engaged in things that we shouldn't be engaged in, God, would you convict us of our sin? And Lord, if we are a perpetrator of injustice in this world, God, would you change us? Lord, we live in a broken world. A world where a guy comes into a synagogue and kills people just because they're Jews. God, help us those who claim the name of Living Water Community or claim the name of Jesus here in Living Water. God, would you help us to be instruments of reconciliation and love? Might we proclaim the gospel fearlessly, dear God, but with great humility? Thank you for this time that we can be together. We pray that you would be pleased. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.